Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Can I please have your attention? Daniel Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, come to The Dispatch to do all the things that you need to do to make everybody happier and better in this world. And um, today's episode is sponsored by our friends at the Acton line and by Gabby. More about them in a little bit. Okay, so early in the pandemic, we had this great run of guests who um, I'd long wanted on the podcast and they could no longer use the excuse of not being able to make it into the studio to come on because no one was going into any studios and we did everything by remote anyway. And we are turning to this great tradition with one of the guests I've wanted to have on here almost as long as anybody I can think of. Um, he is, in, in a normal world, he would be my go-to guy for all sorts of conservative intellectual and libertarian intellectual history and eggheadery. He's, he, he rivals Matt Continetti on, on this score, um, or maybe some comic book geekery, um, or for his normal day job, environmental law stuff, because he runs the Case Western um, Center on Environmental, uh, the Coleman Center, Coleman P. Burke Center for Environmental Law at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. And he's the jo- the Johann Verhey Memorial Professor of Law at Case Western. And uh, But we're going to have him on primarily to talk about weed, which might be surprising to people. Um, and, but he, he manages to make it relevant to his day job somehow. And that's Jonathan Adler. Jonathan, welcome to The Remnant. Good to be here. Um, so yeah, I, we're, there's no way I can have you on without like wandering into, um, other various, um, cul-de-sacs. Cause you're like one of the, if, if, the, if the remnant were an organization, you might be in-house counsel. <laughs> and then I have although, to actually practice law, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although my friend Shannon Coffin might take offense at that. Uh, yeah, well. but, um, um, you have a, book out that you were the editor of marijuana federalism with a, a fantastic subtitle uncle sam and mary jane and uh it's it's a shockingly interesting subject in all sorts of ways um so why don't you just sort of lay out what the book is about and and why you wrote it 
Yeah, no, I'm happy to. So, um, you know, we've been, people think about drugs as a question of, you know, do you legalize, do you not legalize? And at some level that obviously that matters, but the, for our, given our constitutional structure, what really matters is which level of government is doing what. And as I think listeners know, um, you know, starting in the 90s, uh, Pete, some jurisdictions decided they that they wanted marijuana to be legal, at least the first for medical purposes. And then um, several years ago, Colorado and Washington state said, no, it should be legal for recreational use. And the problem is that in our system, we have two levels of government and marijuana is illegal at the federal level, uh, even though it's legal at the state level. And I thought that um, this created a really good opportunity to explore what happens when federal and state governments disagree. And I also like the fact that this was an issue that kind of puts people in different places on federalism than they might be otherwise. And um, it therefore was a useful way to explore why federalism is a good thing and how to make it work better. Um, and so we did a conference and then we figured we should do something more accessible and hence the book. Um, so it's really about, you know, not, it's not about is marijuana good or bad. It's not whether you should or should not legalize. It's about what you do when different people in different parts of the country have very strong differences about what, how we should approach this question and, and how you reconcile that and why this could show why federalism works. And so let's, let's, let's do some level setting. Um, uh, we, uh, the federal government outlawed weed in 1937, um, which as I'm sure you're the first to point out, 1937 is, is a bad year for anything involving law passage or constitutional (laughs) questions in all sorts of ways. And I'm sure you can talk Uh, about that. Uh, at great detail. And it seems to me, all right, so part of the issue there is like when they ban booze, they recognize that the federal government doesn't have any police power, but they didn't, so they had to amend the constitution, right? And they didn't do that with weed. Instead, they passed a, a federal law enforcement mechanism, which is kind of at odds with the way the founders set things up. Do I have that basically right? Yeah, I mean, so, right. So when we, when, when, when the prohibition movement decided that it was necessary to go beyond state-level prohibition and do it nationally, they believed they had to do it uh, federally. Um, it's the shortest-lived constitu- uh, constitutional amendment, right, because it gets repealed just several years later because they realized uh, what a mess it was. Um, but Marijuana prohibition remained on the books. Marijuana gets folded into the the modern Controlled Substances Act. Um, it ends drug laws generally because you're talking about enforcing rules about possession of something. Force all kinds of uh, extensions of federal power that aren't involved when you're talking about regulating, you know, securities or um, uh, major enterprises. Um, so there are huge constitutional pressures, and then there's just the practical. Uh, pressure that that you know there aren't that many federal drug agents, right? There just aren't, right? There are you know Colorado and Washington, the two states that des- that decided to legalize marijuana, regulated under state law for recreational purposes, have more cops than the Federal Drug Enforcement Administration has globally. So just at a practical level, if the federal government wants to 
prevent people from possessing, using, selling, distributing, growing marijuana, it's really hard for them to do because they don't they don't have the troops. They don't have the right. they don't have the gut. And they need the state and local government to do it. Um and for most of the last, you know, for you know, since 1937, most of the period of time, um, the state governments were were in line and agreed with with the war on drugs, right? They they, they the whole reefer madness message was a message that worked, and um, but that's no longer the case. Uh, and so you have this this problematic situation where the federal government wants something to be illegal, is unable and unwilling to actually do what would be required to make that happen um, when states say that they don't want to participate. And now, you know, you have a dozen, 11 states in D.C. that that all say recreational use is allowed. Um, 30 some states say medicinal use is okay. A whole bunch of other states have made low level possession to be, um, uh, you know, the equivalent of jaywalking. And, you know, I, I don't have, you know, I have, I have kind of libertarian impulses that make me gen- in general think the drug war is probably a bad idea, but I'm enough of a, of a Hayekian or Burkean to say that, that we will actually learn a lot about what happens when you legalize a substance by the fact that places are doing it. But this, this structure where you have legal locally, but illegal federally creates all kinds of distortions and problems mm-hmm. that we don't have to have. And so part of the point of the book is to say, look, we we can let Colorado and California do their thing. We can protect Nebraska and Oklahoma if they don't want to go along. And we don't have to have the the other messy aspects that we currently have in terms of banking law, tax law, RICO, uh, gun permits. I mean, it just permeates so many other areas that it creates a mess. Yeah. I mean, so let's let's I want to come back to the experiment thing, because I have a I was all I was long in favor of decriminalization of weed and then I sort of a go slow see about legalization. And we kind of jumped a lot of steps on the board really fast. And I want to come back to that. But um, can you give me some concrete examples of like how this mismatch between federal law and state law works on the ground? I mean, I know I know that weed shops basically can't use banks. Right. I mean. But there right. might so be a lot of that kind of stuff. They can't use federally re- regulated financial institutions. And um, and one of the things, you know, the Obama administration issued these famous memos basically saying, if what you're doing is legal under state law, um, the feds aren't going to come after you. You know, unless you're trafficking across state lines or, or, or distributing to kids, the feds are going to leave you alone. Right? The U.S. US attorneys have and the FBI and so on have better things to do. Um, and, you know. That created some space, but when it comes to things like banking regulation or, or gun regulation and so on, there is no memo that you can write. Banks, and I'm going to oversimplify a little bit, banks have to be able to certify that they know who their customers are and how the and, and how customers are using banking services. And they're supposed to be able to say, we know that this money isn't being used for, say, money laundering. Well, they can't certify that if they know their client is in fact operating a marijuana dispensary in Colorado, which is illegal under federal law. And so banks, being very risk averse, um, largely just remove themselves. And and so um, now in some states, credit unions can can fill the gap a little bit. Um, and you know some places are experimenting with with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. But if you want, you know 
all the benefits of, you know, reputable banks uh, uh, servicing an industry um, and providing an alternative to, say, organized crime and other things, um, you don't want banks to be scared away. Um, If, on the other hand, you want marijuana to be an all-cash business, um, uh, which makes it, you know, more vulnerable to money laundering and, and organized crime, well, then you do what we do now. So that's that's the example that I think gets the most attention in D.C. because the banking lobbyists um, care about this issue. But it matters for things like, you know, if you are a medical marijuana user, you're not supposed to be able to buy a gun because that's a red flag on your gun check. Um, if you're growing marijuana and your neighbors think you're committing a nuisance, they could sue you under state nuisance law, or they could file, as happened in Colorado, a civil RICO claim um, against you because the drug offenses are predicate offenses under RICO. And that means treble damages, that means massive legal liability risks. Um, Under uh, Lawyers are not allowed to uh, counsel clients on the prospective violation of law, right? So, So if I have a client, I'm allowed to help them, I'm allowed to defend them for the crimes they've already committed. I can't help them commit new ones. Well, traditionally that would mean I can't set up an LLC for a marijuana dispensary mm-hmm. because that's gonna be an ongoing criminal enterprise. And so states have had to figure out how do they redefine traditional rules of, of ethics for lawyers. Uh, under tax law, you can't um, deduct expenses for uh, corporate expenses for, for uh, criminal enterprises. So. Um, you know, the guy that's growing strawberries, he has all these tax deductions. The guy that's growing marijuana does not. And, you know, that we might think it's unfair. It also, that creates really bad incentives in terms of tax evasion and so on. So, I mean, there's all these examples like that, where just the fact that marijuana is illegal under federal law has effects on other legal requirements. And create means that the experiments that we're getting in Colorado and Washington aren't the experiments we'd be getting if we really let states make the choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry. And so if we're, we're, okay, I'm sorry, go on, go on. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you met, we mentioned alcohol before. We actually, we figured this out when we repealed prohibition, um, uh, right? We said, we didn't say alcohol has to be legal everywhere. We said, Distribution, possession, and 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 sale of alcohol is no longer a federal crime unless you're violating applicable state law. And so what that did is it, on the one hand, it you know, ended prohibition at the federal level, but it also meant that, you know, a state that was worried about being the victim of, of uh, bootleggers from neighboring jurisdictions could actually get federal help. Um, and um, uh, so, you know, back, I don't know if it's still the case. It used to be the case when you went to South Carolina, you had to buy all your booze in those little in mini bottles. Right. Um, and and it was not only a state crime to import the big bottles into South Carolina. It was also a federal crime. Um, but it was only a federal crime when you were when you were triggering the when you were violating the state law crime. So we figured out how to do that. And it makes all these other problems go away. Um, we could do that with marijuana. Um, certainly the book argues that that's what we should do. Uh, and then Nebraska and Oklahoma and Alabama get federal help against trafficking, but Colorado and Washington can actually have marijuana businesses operate as normal businesses under state law. All right, so let's go back to the the, the experimentation thing. 
Um, Michael Grieva persuaded me a long time ago that the laboratories of democracy thing is is really abused and misused, and that in fact it was a progressive backdoor for coming up with progressive policies that weren't federalist in nature. But we all, as Americans, like the idea of laboratories of democracy as it's properly understood, and I always thought that it would be fine if Colorado and or Washington state or Colorado and Washington state sort of were the equivalent of Atlantic city and Vegas for weed. Right. And, and then stop there for like 10 years and see how that goes. But in the last 10 years, we've seen I mean, since you came out with this book, the number of states have expanded, right? Right. I can't. I can't look. When, I'm, when I give a talk on it, I can't look at my introduction for my stats. I've got to go online and make sure they're up to date because they keep changing. Yeah. No. It's they're, 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 the only other issue we have seen popular opinion change this rapidly on uh, in the last, you know, arguably ever is gay marriage in the sense yeah. that it's a combination of some of it's generational. But some of it also, I guess, is is somewhat experiential that 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 people have certain assumptions about what it means, and then as soon as the the chaos or the that they expected doesn't happen, their opinions change very quickly. So yeah, so it it, it is true that this has occurred so much more rapidly than anyone would have expected, um, and that makes it a little bit harder to. Make, to judge the experiments, right? Because we're we're not um, because so much is changing so quickly. Um, and as I already mentioned, the, the way the federal government federal law overlays this means that we're not seeing things exactly as they would in a, if this were purely a question of state law. Um, the good news is, though, is that um, almost everything that was predicted about marijuana legalization, both by the advocates and the opponents appears to have been overstated, mm-hmm. at least thus far. I mean, uh, that could change. But like all of the all of the horrific stories about, oh, you're going to have all these car accidents or there'll be lots of truancy in schools or whatever, you see, you see it's very hard to tease out significant effects. On the flip side of that, all the people that said, oh, you know, you won't have, you know, this will cure depression and people won't uh, uh, have opioid overdoses or you know, all these wonderful positive things, yeah, not so much. It, yeah. it generates revenue, right? States states get money. Uh, they like that. Um, but it's not like this massive cash cow. Uh, I, I think that's good because it, it suggests that a significant legal change actually isn't producing really dramatic changes in the way people live their lives. Um, uh, but that seems to be what, what we're learning, right? That, 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 um, what people do and don't do with marijuana is more a function of norms and the, you know, the local culture, local community in which they live, and less a function of what the law says. Uh, and I think that's a good story. I mean, I think that's a positive story. Yeah, I mean, I, I go, I, I go, I go back and forth on a lot of that. Um, I mean, it, it seems to me. Uh, just arguing in the abstract for two seconds. I, I, I am sympathetic to some of the arguments from people like David Brooks, where if you've got an economy in transition, 
where young men can no longer find um, good middle-class destination jobs simply by virtue of having a strong work ethic and a strong back, introducing on a large scale a substance that does have the effect, not on everybody, but does have the effect on lots of people. If, if, if forget what the studies show, just my rather large anecdotal experiences, um, uh, it does sap a certain work ethic out of you. It does make it really easy to stay on the couch and play video games. It does encourage a lifestyle that isn't about waking up early and pounding on doors to find work or improving your educational prospects and all of that. And while that doesn't mean that the liberty side of the argument isn't a strong one or a valid one, but I mean, I think we all, I mean, you're more libertarian than I am, but I think we all understand that under libertarianism rightly understood, understood just because you can do something and just because you should be allowed to do something if you want to, doesn't mean you should do it. No, I, I, I share those concerns. I mean, I, I share those concerns at a social level, for yeah. sure. Um, uh, and, um, you know, and especially when you add into the fact that, um, and, and Peter Suderman had a great piece on this about how video games replicate the reward structure that you get from work, mm-hmm. um, which is part of why they are so consuming and addictive. And that, that the video game designers like know this, right. That, that, you know, making you go find all the little, you know, uh, runes or doohickeys in Assassin's Creed or Tomb Raider or whatever, the, 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 the creates an illusion of mastery and that creates certain psychic benefits, which for people that especially, uh, people that would otherwise be unskilled workers, it actually emotionally and otherwise provides uh, the the benefits that work would provide in terms of one's own one's on psychic. So I I worry about that, um, uh, and um, I worry about it especially when you're talking about very rapid change in the law, because I tend to think that 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 evolutionary change tends to be better because it gives time for norms to adjust. Right. Um, so I, I agree with all that. Um, so for me, you know, the one chapter in the book that talks about the empirical, you know, I just said, you know, tell us what this, what the data shows. And that mm-hmm. the, the, the folks at that chapter came back and said, there, the changes aren't as great as people thought they would be in either yeah. direction. And so, and so I, to me, that just is, it's reassuring to me because I share your concerns. I share, um, uh, the, the concern that, that if, if people can, you know, kind of satisfy certain needs without working, without being more engaged in society than otherwise, there's a decent number of people that will succumb to that. And that, that overall that's bad for society. I mean, I, I share that. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine, it. you can imagine a world like our friend Ron Bailey would love of, vast virtual economies that exist outside the corporeal world, some sort of William Gibson Neuromancer world. I mean, you, and you have inklings of this in places, you know, there are essentially sweatshops in places like South Korea where kids work all day playing video games to then sell some sword in World of Warcraft on the open market. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the transition period between now and that world is, is, is long and a lot of lives can get caught up in that. But 
I look, I, I agree with you. You know, I, I did an interview with Bill Bennett on C-SPAN where he gave the the world will end uh, version of pot legalization. And I think, you know, look, I think he was I thought he was wrong at the time, but not entirely wrong um, that, you know, certainly the weed that is produced today is much more potent than the weed of 40 years ago. And people make mistakes with that. Um, I think also people will learn from those mistakes, you know, just like you learn that hard liquor has a different effect than, than beer. Right. But, um, I do want, I I do have to say that, that some of the most entertaining people in the, and I'm sure you've had to run into more of them than I have in the sort of, uh, fringier parts of sort of libertoid world who would say to you with a straight face, all of this stuff about how like, um, you know, the big business is keeping hemp off the market because it would revolutionize the economy and big pharma wants to keep weed out. And don't you understand we could get rid of the national debt if we just taxed weed? You know? <laughs> I mean, those guys are like, as long as you don't take them too seriously, they're a lot of fun, you know, in their 420 t-shirts and, and overalls. But, um, so I take your point. It's good that neither extreme version turned out to be all that prescient. But I just think there's a lot of a lot of data to still come in. Oh no, okay, I totally agree with that. And the other you know, the other thing, I mean, what I also say to you know, you know, I come back to the, handling this through federalism is the right way to handle it, right? In part because it's better that a handful of jurisdictions make make a mistake if a mistake is made than for them all to you know for us to make it for the entire country. And if it sure. turns out that the, that the jurisdictions that are most resistant to marijuana legalization, like Nebraska and Oklahoma and Alabama, are um, are right, then it'd be good that they don't go down that road, and so they can serve as the counterexample. It appears, like I said, it appears that most of the things they're worried about don't happen. But part of it is also cultural, right? I mean, you know, what I'm enough of a libertarian that I tend to think if libertarian policies are given a fair chance to compete with alternatives through a federalist system that in in most areas probably not all but in most areas people will learn that the libertarian the more liberty embracing approach is preferable to the alternative but i also think that that i have no objection to the idea that we sh- that we should have to prove that um and discover that that you shouldn't just take it on faith because i read a murray rothbard book and i reasoned from first principles that this is the way the world should be structured um and i also think and this is a part that that i think people don't talk enough about is that for even something as simple as marijuana the choice isn't legalize don't legalize because their actual policy has all this texture all these mm-hmm. details you have to fill in. Um, is it going to be regulated? How are you going to regulate it? Is it going to be taxed? Is it going to be taxed based on the THC content, on the weight, on the medium it's sold in? Um, how are you going to deal with fraud in this context? How are you going to, I mean, there's a whole bunch of questions that don't, you know, aren't subject to reasoning from first principles. This is something that a lot of, you know, a lot of my libertarian friends sometimes forget is that you know, it's it's not as simple as just saying, okay, it's legal. Um, and answering, figuring out those questions, figuring out this precise details of what should the legal regime look like or not look like actually matter. How do you deal with kids' access? I mean, assume you think that there is some age at which 
people should not be allowed to use marijuana. As a parent I, and someone who's looked at the literature on the effect of marijuana on youth brain development, you know, I, I, I definitely agree. Kids should not be allowed to just go in and, and get and buy marijuana. Um, well, how do you enforce that? Um, what sorts of prophylactic rules ju are, are justified and and what sorts of ones um, are just imposing burdens on, on consenting adults without affecting kids? Figuring out those details is harder than people often think. And that's actually an added benefit of letting different jurisdictions do different things. So insofar as Colorado and Washington did things differently, we want to know, okay, well, what were those differences and 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 what effect did they have? That matter, that kind of difference matters. And um, we don't talk about that kind of stuff en enough in, in policy. We we pretend as if you wave a magic wand and you get perfect policy. And that, that's just not how the world works. So one of the things that you've written about a bit, you know, particularly back in your early CEI days, right, when I first met you, um, is the distinction between being free market and pro-business. And there is a major distinction to be found there. And, um, and so I'm wondering, I mean, I know it's early, but you're talking about how they're raising tax res revenues and whatnot. And I have family in, the, in, in Washington state that has been watching up close the sort of special carve-outs that weed producers get that other agricultural producers do not get. Um, I'm wondering, have you seen the emergence of big weed? I mean, is there starting to be a sort of like case study for public choice theory about regulatory capture by big incumbents and all that kind of stuff? There's, it's early, but we're starting to see some of that. I mean, actually here in Ohio, um, there was a ballot initiative where and to allow uh, marijuana, medical marijuana, and um, it was going to be done the way we, they did the casinos here, which is they were it was going to identify specific places where marijuana could be grown. And of course, you could easily find out who owned the, I mean, like literally like, like specific, not like parts of the state or jurisdictions, but like specific properties. And mm -hmm. it turned out the people bankrolling the, the, the ballot initiative were the people that were going to own all the growers and, and that were, they were going to essentially have a, a state sanctioned monopoly. It's and, like railroad magnets all over again. Yeah. And, right? it, and yeah, and in part, I think, given the experience we had with doing that with casinos in Ohio, that went down to defeat. And mm -hmm. a lot of people were like, oh, no, this is going to be bad for decriminalization of, of marijuana in Ohio. Actually, no, it turned out a critical mass of the voters still wanted medicinal marijuana in Ohio. They just didn't want this crony capitalist, you know, uh, oligopoly written into the state constitution. And so then there was going to be a new ballot initiative and the legislature said, OK, we'll just take care of it because um, uh, we don't want that. And so that we're seeing it and we're also seeing people resist it. My guess is your average pro marijuana legalization person is probably a little more skeptical of big business than your average kind of free market guy. Mm -hmm. And I think that. Um, that means there has been resistance to things that look like, you know, big weed. But but it, you, we're seeing inklings of it. We are seeing carve outs. We are seeing um, uh, political wrangling over um, uh, licenses. So some of some states limit the number of licenses and limit the number of, of dispensaries and so on. And, and we're seeing that uh, in some in some jurisdictions. 
Um, you know, John Boehner uh, has uh, uh, marijuana clients now. A lot of big law firms do. Um, uh, the fact that you can't do traditional banking kind mm-hmm. of puts a little bit of a crimp on it. Um, yeah. But it, 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 we're seeing it, and it, it's it's a legit concern. Um, and uh, you know, there's there's we see in other um, substances. You know, when you see in alcohol, you see it in tobacco. We see a lot of really bad stuff happen when the producers of those products decide that regulation can be used as a way of cementing their dominant position in the field and squelching competition. And it can have bad economic effects, but it can have bad public health effects, right? The reason historically there was no rush for a safer cigarette is because the the regulatory position the tobacco companies were in, that was that was no benefit to them. And they could right. keep competition out. So we should be wor- we should be worried about that with with marijuana. We should be worried about that uh, a lot. And um, I like to think if it's all handled at the state level, it makes it harder, right? Because if if you have some kind of you know marijuana monopoly in one jurisdiction, people will see that oh wait, it's better in a different jurisdiction where we don't have that. Um, but we should definitely, I mean, de- definitely worry about that. So, I mean, one of the things I like about this is that it's, um, I th- you know, one of the things that you get from Adam Smith, Hayek, Burke, um, sort of the good libertarian economic theory is that these sorts of problems are universal problems that emerge from human nature and the desire to form factions and coalitions and interests. And, and that's one of the reasons why. I think conservatives and free market people need to be so attuned to the fact that just because something is good for 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 business doesn't necessarily mean it's good for liberty or that it's necessarily a free market position. And that's why I want to tell people to listen to the Acton line. Acton line is the flagship podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, dedicated to the promotion of a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. With episodes released every Wednesday, Act in Line brings together writers, economists, religious leaders, thinkers, journalists, newsmakers, and more in conversations that bridge the gap between good intentions and sound economics. By demonstrating the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free markets, conversations on Act in Line reveal how economic freedom is essential to creating an environment in which religious freedom can flourish but also that the market can function only when people behave morally. Faith and freedom must go hand in hand. To subscribe to ActonLine, visit acton.org dingo, or search ActonLine on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are available. But for internal bragging rights and, and the greater glory of this podcast, it would be best for me if you went to acton.org dingo to subscribe we thank the acton line for sponsoring today's episode of the remnant okay so uh let's just say, you bit... know, go ahead no just say i mean the um you know we I, i've done a bunch of stuff on e-cigarettes uh uh-huh. and tobacco regulation which i think relates directly to this point of the problem that with potentially dangerous substances and rent seeking can can produce a really dangerous combination. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, the, the, initially the cigarette companies 
tried to squelch e-cigarettes and then they realized they were going to lose that. And so now then they decided, well, we'll 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 buy them and we will make sure that their marketplace looks like ours. And that is what that we're in the process of that happening now. And that, I think, is is a huge problem because we had a world before or briefly where e-cigarette everyone. A lot of people knew e-cigarettes were less dangerous than cigarettes. And for, if there are any children listening, if my children are listening, that doesn't mean you should use e-cigarettes. It doesn't mean you should vape. It just means that one bad thing is worse than the other bad thing. Um, uh, I'll exempt cigars um, just for you. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, there was actually the potential for pe- of companies competing to make the safest way of delivering nicotine. And that's good. And right. you know, just like we, it's a good world in which Volvo can say we are safer than those other cars and can do ads about that. We want that in other products. With marijuana, insofar as um, you know, uh, it turns out, right, as you would expect, it's safer to eat marijuana than it is to smoke it. Right? As a general matter, burning stuff and inhaling the smoke is something in general our lungs don't really like. And um, other ways of delivering. THC could be safer and more controlled. And we will, we want a marketplace in which that sort of competition occurs. That's a sort of marketplace that business often doesn't like. And it's a sort of marketplace that regulators don't like. And so there is a real risk, whatever ends up happening with marijuana, that, that um, big weed will get involved or other established industry or companies that, that are already operate in heavily regulated industries will, will move into that space and try and replicate the heavy regulation that they see in ways that suppress competition, that tries to bring out the better aspects of, of these products. Now, how can you be safer? How can you reduce side effects? How can you make it, uh, how can you have a, a delivery system or a sales system that is is less prone to uh, leakage to, to children or whatever else? I mean, we should want that. But anyway. Yeah, but uh, with, with the- One with, of my soapboxes. I mean, just to- um test your libertarianism on this stuff a little bit uh, with the e-cigarette stuff, that great moral panic we had like six months, a year ago, you know, we live in a strange timeline where everything's a flat circle. So I don't know exactly when that was, but it feels recently. Um, those lung disease cases were almost entirely for off brand from off brand unregulated cartridges. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to try and say this carefully, so I don't. There's what we know, and there's what we assume. We we the the syndrome that was known as Ivali appears. All the cases where we know where they came from. Not only were they off-brand cartridges, they were off-brand THC cartridges, Mm -hmm. and they appear to have come exclusively, or 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 been used in, in and acquired in markets where marijuana is in fact not legal. So mm-hmm. what you have is in jurisdictions where you can't get marijuana legally, people were trying to find alternatives. One alternative is that that might be easier to disguise is THC in a in a vaping fluid, and these off-brand black market um, fluids were using. I'm going to oversimplify using chemicals to kind of as the vehicle for the THC that actually cause problems when they're vaporized and inhaled in the lungs. So vitamin E acetate was one of the substances mm. that was being used in these. Um, and so the, the, the demand that exists for these products was being satisfied 
in a black market, which is not only unregulated, but from a libertarian standpoint, I feel important to note, it's not only that it's unregulated, it's also that it's it, there's no remedy, right? Because even if the product is unregulated and I buy it and it hurts me, if I know where I bought it from, I can still I can still sue the the manufacturer, mm-hmm. or sue the retailer. I can't sue the the black market provider right. because it's already an illegal exchange. So that it's true that there were problems, but the problems were not from Jewel or Views or Mark Ten or Green Smoke or any of the 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 mainstream vaping products, uh, and it wasn't even from legal. THC products in, in legal jurisdictions. It was all from operators that were operating, that were engaged in arbitrage in this in this black market space. Um, that's not what the government said for months and months. The, the CDC took months to acknowledge what was clear in the data. Um, the result is, appears to be a significant change in public opinion about the relative risks of e-cigarettes in ways that are harmful because um, if people don't recognize that e-cigarettes are less risky than cigarettes, then they're more likely to keep smoking. And we appear to be actually be seeing that effect. And as a parent, mm-hmm. I worry about that because look, I don't want my kids to vape, but I really don't want them to smoke, right? right. And, and if they see them as indistinguishable, well, then the likelihood that if they're going to do either, they might do smoking is actually greater. So that moral panic was was potentially really harmful. Um, uh, I also think it illustrates the problem of trying to prohibit stuff that there's a large demand for um, and forcing people to, you know, go through black markets as opposed to, um, I mean, it does appear that, you know, when marijuana is legal, it's less likely to be laced with something, it's less likely to be contaminated. Um, uh and you have a remedy if you if you get bad stuff because you you can say where you got it from. So I keep um, going back in my head to this line from Dave, which I've talked about on here before, from uh, Dave Bose's libertarianism book, Libertarianism of Primer, right? And or Primer, however I'm supposed to pronounce it. And uh, we'll ask David. <laughs> and he, and it's a good book. I mean, I, there's a lot in there I really found useful and all, but. You know, I'm still, I, I, my position on marijuana notwithstanding, I'm still pretty foursquare against legalizing heroin and coke and all of that kind of stuff and, you know, serious narcotics. And there's a line in there, and I'm just paraphrasing, and I hope I'm not being unfair, where he says, imagine how much better it would be if reputable corporations and companies could market drugs um, in a way where they were held responsible for the um the quality, the the safety of them, and blah, 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 blah. And um, I don't remember if he actually compared it to ivory soap, but, you know, that's sort of the way I remember it. And I have a huge problem with that. You know, I have a huge problem with, um, even with, with weed, the idea that we're going to start, you know, people, you know, you always get this argument, well, you know, booze is a really dangerous drug, and therefore, you know, if you're not for drug, you know, uh, prohibition of booze, why aren't you for, um, why are you for prohibition of these other things? And, you know, in a glib way, I, I, I could just say, because I am. Um, but, uh, you know, but, you know, a, a longer conversation would involve the fact that 
alcohol has been sort of central as a central cultural norm in Western civilization going back 5,000 years. And if we're, if you're going to concede that it causes great harm, why are you arguing for introducing more things that cause great harm? And also as someone whose brother was a drug addict and who died, um, uh, I know for a fact that for some irreducible number of people, not everybody, there are plenty of people who tried heroin recreationally. There are plenty of people who tried cocaine recreationally and even meth recreationally and then went on. So that's not for me and went on. There are an irreducible number of people for whom it is basically consigning them to a life of horrible chemical dependence and a kind of sort of uh, slavery. And, um, and it's one thing to say you want to legalize these things. That's one argument. Or there's another thing to say we want to decriminalize these things. That's another argument. It's another thing to say, hey, wouldn't it be great if we just ran commercials during the Super Bowl for the best, you know, for, you know, this will really get you high, you know, or, um, you know, try our heroin because it's so much more pure and it's organic or whatever. I don't think that's a better world. And so what is your libertarian I think we need to, to set, well, I think, I mean, you know, as, as I think, you know, I, you know, I'd go around calling myself a fusionist if, if I wouldn't get weird looks from people or, or they wouldn't think I'm talking about nuclear power, you know, in the sense that I, I, I share the, the, the conservative instinct to be wary of such a dramatic break from what we've done. Um, my view of kind of what the what what the right end state would be is still very very libertarian, and so what I would say is we want we we need to separate those two questions, right? So one question is, it, would there be necessarily be a problem if the world were such that those things were legal and were dealt with in the marketplace the way other dangerous, potentially intoxicating substances are? Is a that's a separate question from okay, given that we're not in that world. And we haven't been living in that world. And we have developed all sorts of norms, traditions, uh, habits, uh, and so on, given the world we're in, how do we think about that transition? And and one of the things that, you know, maybe it's my just getting older, maybe it's my having kids, you know, owning a house, whatever. I worry a lot more about transition rules than my my 25-year-old, more libertarian self did. It's not again. It's not because I don't think private ordering isn't ultimately superior, and it's not because I don't believe that private ordering would ult- wouldn't ultimately handle these questions in a better way. I think it would. It's because when you, you when you push a button to ch- to dramatically change the, the legal rules, there is a transitional period that is more uncertain and more chaotic and can and has and presents a lot of downside risk, and. Um, Right. So as you mentioned, like, why alcohol produces an incredible amount of damage in our society. And we view, we view that as tolerable and we know how to contain it and we know how to deal with it productively and positively because we've been dealing with it for so long. Mm-hmm. And so my concern about heroin is not that it's that much more of a, a powerful thing. It's that because we haven't been dealing with it in the same way for so long. And we don't know how long it would take for us to learn how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, not to beat a dead horse about that, you know, but one of the reasons I like federalism as, as a system is, you know, I would be happy to say tomorrow, for purposes of federal law, 
all drugs are illegal under federal law insofar as they are illegal under state law. What would change? Well, in, in most of the country, that would make marijuana legal for, for federal purposes, as long as you were using it within the state. It would change nothing for cocaine. It would change nothing right. for heroin, because no state right now is ready to take that next step. But if a state were willing to, if the people of that state really supported that, you know, I, I don't know how I would vote if I lived in that state, but I'd be okay with letting that state do that. And if my libertarian priors about how we could learn to handle that are correct, we would see that in that jurisdiction. And it, and you know, at the end of the day, it's it's a very Burke in my view is a very Burkean view. Of you you have to let private institutions evolve to deal with things that produce both benefits and costs. And as, as a political movement, as, as academics, as whatever else, we spend way too little time thinking about how do you transition. We spend too much time arguing about this end state nirvana because, you know, um, Milton Friedman or Ayn Rand or Murray Rothbard or, or Hans Hermann Hoppe or someone said, this is what the perfect end state look is. And my view is maybe, but getting there is hard, right? right? And, and we don't spend nearly enough time both thinking about how institutionally we could allow that evolution to occur, but also how we might think about managing those transitions. Because it might even be that the end state is so much better than the current position, but the chaos and destruction we will go through before we get to that end state is so dramatic, great and awful that we will, don't want to go through that. Well, that's worth knowing, right? Right. Um, so that's that's my. I don't know. No, that's, 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 a, that's a totally fair and intellectually consistent position. I mean, the Donner Party was absolutely correct. It would be great to be in California, right? But getting there <laughs> is really important because if you if you leap the canyon and you fall short of the other side, you got huge problems. If you get stuck in the mountains you end up eating each other, right? Um, and that's yeah, I was a about the mountains in, in a different way. Like the summits, you like being on, like you're, we're on a decent summit. It's not, it's not the best summit, but we're on a decent summit. And we kind of see through the mists of libertarian theory what we think is a better, a better summit to be mm -hmm. on, right? a higher summit, a, a, a closer to nirvana. And, and, but there's this huge valley we have to get through, this huge canyon, and we can't quite see the bottom of it. And so we've got to be careful because depending on how deep and terrible that the bottom of that canyon is, it may not be worth the trek or we may not even survive it to get to that better place. And, um, you know, so I, I'm totally with you that a lot of my libertarian uh, brethren don't don't think about those problems or are just willing to say, well, you know, it'll all come out in the wash and it'll be fine eventually. You know, no, I, you know, I, I care about my life, my children's lives, their futures. I, I care about that transition. Um, I, one last uh, directly weed-related question, and then I want to move on to some other stuff. Whenever I talk to about pot legalization with normal people, um, and I exclude both of us from that category in a certain <laughs> sense, um, but whenever I talk to, you know, one of the questions, it's weird how it always comes up, is what do you do about drug testing, right? I mean, if I run a construction site, um, I got insurance liability. I don't think it's a federal issue. It's a state regulatory issue, I think, right? Um, and I can't get a bond for my forklift or whatever it is if 
I don't drug test my forklift driver. Now, if you're in a state and weed is legal, and I say, you failed your drug test, you can't have this job. Um, first of all, how, how is that problem being dealt with? And how do you think that problem should be dealt with if you think it's a problem at all? Well, I mean, I, I don't think it's a problem at all in the sense that, you know, um, uh, airlines uh, have rules about when the, when, when the last time a pilot can have taken a drink, right? Or, um, you know, there are, uh, I tend to think that that bonding requirements and insurance requirements work better than than government regulation for those sorts of questions. You know, let let the folks who who have skin in the game and are going to have to pay out the insurance uh, right. uh, claim uh, make those decisions. And and there are examples of that sort. So I, I think that's the I think that's really the way to deal with it. There is, I'll say two. One, um, testing for marijuana is not as good as some other things in that. Um, we don't really have good tests for intoxic for marijuana intoxication right now, um, and the tests, you know, like things like you can't just like dangle a like, big bag of Doritos in front of someone, and if they just start put it on like a feed bag, you know, that, they can't. That'll drive. be the that'll be the new thing, you know, when cops pull you over, right? They'll just wave the Doritos <laughs> in front of your in front of your face and depend, you know, while asking you to recite the alphabet backwards or what have you. Um, so, and and you know, you do the care tests and the like, you know, you're going to test what someone may have done, you know, days ago, or you, you may remember the office episode. Um, I, I, I've seen every episode of the office now too many times because my 13 year old daughter is insistent upon having watched every episode seven times through before it's removed from Netflix. Um, and she's on the sixth iteration now, um, where, where, where Michael's really worried about the fact that he went to some rock concert and was standing next to somebody and he's going to, yeah, yeah. you know, he's going to, uh, so he has to buy urine from, from Dwight. Um, so I mean, those are those are real problems. But you know, if an employer wants to be extra careful, they should be. You know, I now have to every morning before I come, every day I'm coming to campus for the days that I teach in person, or if I come up with something else, right? I have to go on. I have to go online on or do an app on my phone. Uh, you know, I check check my temperature. Do I have certain symptoms? Whatever else, is the university being overcautious? Maybe I don't know. It's above my pay grade. Um, as a private employer, they should be allowed to say, if you're going to come into our buildings, this is our standard. Uh, a constru- if a construction company is told by its insurance folks, look, um, you need to test everybody every Tuesday for marijuana. And any I'm just making you and, and anyone sure. that fails that, well, then if they know it's going to be on Tuesday, well, then they 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 have a problem because they're not able to not consume when the test is coming right. up. Right. They should be allowed to do that. And um, if it turns out that some companies are being overcautious or they're excluding a lot of valuable employees for this, some other company will decide that they want to um, uh, do that. And if it means that people that do a lot of weed aren't in the construction industry and instead have to, you know, work in comic book shops or something else, so be, so be it, it, right? Yeah. Right? Um, I mean, I do think it's amazing. You talk to you talk to private employers about how many people fail scheduled drug tests and um you know that you're right it should really tell you something about somebody and and i i like your point about how insurance should be more of a governor here because when you have as you put it skin in the game it makes you um 
actually look at the data in a way that reflects your own bottom line rather than some abstract theory about things. And, you know, everyone cares about their bottom line and particularly when it comes to insurance. And that's why I want to talk about Gabby. When you've had the same car insurance or homeowner's insurance for years, you kind of get trapped into paying your premiums and not thinking about it. That makes it really easy to overpay and not even realize it. Stop overpaying for car and homeowner's insurance. See about getting a low rate for the exact same coverage you already have thanks to Gabby. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples-to-apples -apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive and Nationwide and Travelers. Just link your current insurance account and in just minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage you currently have. I did it and found out I have a pretty good deal, which was gave me peace of mind. But uh, you know, a lot of other people, we might find out that you've been wildly overpaying. So give it a try. Gabby customers save on average $825 per year. Moreover, Gabby will never sell your info. So no annoying spam or robocalls. It's totally free to check your rate and there's no obligation. Take a few minutes right now and stop overpaying for your car or homeowner's insurance. Go to gabby.com slash remnant, not dingo. Go to gabby.com slash remnant. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash remnant. Gabby.com slash remnant. We thank Gabby for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Okay, so you brought it up. Um, I want I want the official scorekeepers to record this fact that you brought up fusionism before I did. Um, if I recall correctly, I made you read a bunch of Frank Meyer way back when. For a you Liberty did, Fund, I think you did. We did a great Liberty Fund thing, and I learned I learned a lot of stuff. I mean, I, I mean, I knew a good deal about fusionism, having been at National Review for so long and all that. But I read a lot of stuff that was a very useful enterprise and it was fun arguing with libertarians. And, um, but, uh, um, I think you're not going to correct me on this. Um, the state of when we should clarify for listeners as if our listeners wouldn't know this, but they would, um, fusionism is the school of thought that was primarily promulgated by Frank Meyer, who was an editor at national review and a great man, interesting thinker, former communist turned conservative. And he basically argued that um, there, that this, what we would call libertarianism or liberty-loving and conservatism in the American in the Western tradition, the Anglo-American tradition, that they were not necessarily at odds because in our tradition, uh, virtue not freely chosen isn't virtuous. You cannot compel virtue. Um, and uh, this was back when you really didn't talk about libertarianism. You talked about individualism was like the word of choice back then. And um, there's, there are some rooms in the mansion of fusionism, but we're both in a couple of them. And uh, it, but anyway, it seems to me a fair statement that fusionism on the right, which is the kind we're talking about, has seen better days. Um. And um, I was wondering where you come down on the, uh, you know, the new post-liberalism, nationalism, however you want to label it. Um, you think it's a flash in the pan? Do you think it's something to worry about? Um, take it. I away. hope it's a flash. I hope it's a flash in the pan. Um, I, I, well, let me let me let me back. I mean, I I do think there are, um, you know, post-liberal or illiberal thinkers that I think are important and worth paying attention to and that you can occasionally learn from and, and so on. And, you know, 
Um, I'm an academic in part because I like ideas and ruminate about stuff. But, it, you know, I do believe that Amer- what, part of what makes America great is that it is a uh, liberal, it, it is a liberal project. Um, it, you know, that, that this is a country that was based on classical liberal ideals and that American conservatism, therefore, is rightfully and best conserving that liberal tradition. And I think the problem is that, you know, some of the, the more nationalist and illiberal thinkers are, in effect, giving, willing to give up or consider giving up what it is that makes America great. And I'm not willing to give up on that. Um, I'm worried about it. <laughs> um, um, I, you know, think that uh, uh, the, the, we don't have as, you know, there aren't as many, we don't have as many allies as we thought we had. Um, Mm -hmm. or, um, they weren't as steadfast as we thought they might've been. And, um, I think that's something to really worry about. Um, uh, but I don't, you know, I don't think giving up on liberal ideas of free, free discourse and free speech and giving up on the fundamental ideals of limited government, which are ultimately small L classical, you know, liberal classical liberal ideas, you know, no, um, I'm still wedded to that. Can you can, can you confirm a rumor for me that you took up this interest in marijuana when you heard people like Tucker and Josh Hawley say that libertarians have been running all federal policy for the last 30 years? Is that really <laughs> what drove you to the demon weed? No, no. Actually, what drove me to it was just like, literally, I mean, literally the idea for the conference that led to the book was um, uh, Colorado and Washington uh, legalized and um I contacted some some folks that I knew from DC that weren't that were involved in marijuana policy and I said look you know the issue is now no longer legalized don't legalize it's about how do you deal with this in a federal structure under our constitution how do you deal with the fact that our constitution i think wonderfully divides government power in this way both horizontally and vertically and that this is a way to um, you know, simultaneously educate the left about how federalism actually can 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 be beneficial for policy objectives that they care about, and and get folks on the right to think about you know applying their principles more more consistently. And then the next thing I knew, um, Peter Lewis of all people, um, probably one of the only people to have gotten money from both Peter Lewis and and the Koch Foundation. Um, uh, said they'd fund the project um mm-hmm. and without strings um but uh no um you know <laughs> I, the idea that libertarians have controlled the conservative movement have controlled the conservative legal movement have controlled the halls of power in washington dc i mean is 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 funny um uh but it's it's it's, it's i mean there's so many otherworldly things these days where uh, these strange assertion, assertions of the last 30 years or the current reality that really do make you think you're on earth too. Yeah. But, but it's counterproductive I, too. I mean, I mean, this is the thing that I don't get about like, about, about, about Josh Hawley, who I, you know, who I know, I won't say, you know, we're, you know, we're acquaintances. I knew him before he was um, a politician. Um, if you look at, for example, the conservative legal movement that he's, you know, attacked um, or said was a failure, right. You know, the big, the victories that, that religious conservatives, care the most about and celebrate the most are victories where they were making common cause with libertarians 
right? It's groups like IJ that are litigating the school choice cases and the cases that say you can't exclude religious institutions from government programs. And, you know, that's actually been fusionism in action where, right. where the libertarians are saying, no, we want the religious conservatives to be able to do their thing without the government getting in the way, because it means other people can too. And that's the way our system should work. And precisely at the moment where you get a bunch of these cases in the Supreme Court, constitutional decisions, right? So decisions that are, that are going to be really hard to undo, um, that Josh Hawley gets all, gets really upset because the Supreme Court in the Bostock case did what, let's face it, Congress was going to do really soon anyway. I mean, I'm not, Mm -hmm. I'm not convinced Gorsuch got that opinion right. Uh, I, I think it was a somewhat shallow application of textualism, um, uh, in that case. But the idea that that's the Supreme Court, um, you know, shifting American culture radically in ways that are ad- in ways that are adverse to those institutions, I-, I just don't, I don't find that convincing. In the same term, where it said no, the 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 um, uh, uh, the ministerial exception to civil rights laws is a real meaningful exception, and yes, you know Montana can't discriminate against religious schools and so on. I mean, those are the things that that, that really matter for traditional religious conservatives to be able to live their lives, to be the remnants uh, uh, that they want to, right? I mean, it's, it's that whole conversation gets me going so because I think. It's it's funny you bring this up because um, obviously, you know, I've been pounding my spoon on my high chair about federalism as the best way to maximize human happiness for a really long time. But I don't remember when it was, maybe it was 10 years ago, you put it as succinctly as well, as, 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 as succinctly um, as could be done to sort of diffuse an argument you often hear, um, which is that you said, you know, look, the freedom, uh, the freedom to live the way you want to live includes the freedom to live conservatively. And um, this is something that I think, you know, the whole drag queen story hour thing with David French and all of that is so lost on a lot of people now. And I think part of it stems from an understandable and to some extent, you know, legitimate worry about certain modes of living vanishing. You know, religion, organized religion is, it's on its heels these days. And, um, and, you know, people, and so it's sort of like this frantic effort to put the toothpaste back in the tube and do it with this one size fits all approach from Washington, whether you call it post-liberalism or national or whatever. But it's this idea to save minority cultures by imposing the values of a minority culture on the entirety of the culture, which I think is doomed to failure. Well, um, yeah, it's like, right, we're, we're not a majority, but somehow we are going to capture majoritarian institutions at the federal level and maintain that position so as to protect ourselves as a minority. I mean, it, just to, to state it is to refute it, right? Because um, what, what, what um, uh, I, I, you know, if you can convince people to buy into a federalist system and a live and let live system, then you're not dependent upon being the majority. To protect yourself right. and buying into this winner take all at the federal level notion, which, you know, the Trump administration has been betraying federalism in a bunch of areas. And 
uh, you know, I've been trying, I've been talking with folks in, in states like California, like in environmental policy saying, look, I, I know you guys like the make California policy national thing, but wouldn't you really like to stick it to the Trump administration and get this big federalist victory? Um, unfortunately, they're, they like making California national policy because um, they believe they're going to have the votes for that. But it, but the the idea from the you know you know Sorab and and the like that 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 there is a way to main, to obtain a sustainable victory at the national level when one's preferences are certainly not the majoritarian preference. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's fanciful and 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 it 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 it, it has the it. it Creates the problem, which conservatives don't spend enough time talking and thinking about, is that if you, if the in the process you sweep away all the mediating institutions, whether it's lower lower levels of governments or non-governmental entities that 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 provide governmental like services, the way community associations do and homeowners associations and, and a lot of religious institutions do, then when you ultimately lose you're actually in a far worse place because all of those bulwarks that you had that protected you um, uh, from what you think is ultimately a godless hedonistic culture are, are gone. And um, yeah, there's a f- fantastic quote from Man for All Seasons about all this, which I'll read when I do the closing on this thing because I don't have it in front of me, but which makes exactly this point. And and that's something I talk about on here a lot. I don't, I, I honestly don't get it. as a matter of strategy, if people actually believe some of the positions that they're holding in this post-liberal debate. And I think some of them do. I think some of them are truly sincere. Um, and if why you wouldn't want a strategy of vastly more robust federalism and say, let's create this, whatever it is, ultramontane Catholic, you know, polity in, in, that's in unity with the precepts of the mother church or whatever it is, in one state, you know, in Vermont or wherever, but instead it's no, 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 that's thinking too small. So let's go for something that is literally impossible to do <laughs> and get nothing. But it's, it's kind of like, it's this deliberate self-martyrization. Um, oh, right. And, and it's true in terms of, you know, the willingness of these same folks to abandon concerns about, about things like property rights, right. Which mm-hmm. is, you know, I mean, the idea that you have a place that is yours, that the government can't take from you, where you get to live your life the way you want to. Um, right? It's a very conservative impulse, right? You can go, you know, you can find all kinds of stuff by Roger Scruton or whomever talking about local communities and neighborhoods and and, and the like. But um, property rights are part of what protects that and allows right. people to inform various types of contractarian communities where they are insulated from the world around them, where they um, all agree to live in a particular way or to, you know, and we should want those underlying institutions, we want the institutional framework that allows those sorts of communities to exist to be as robust as possible. And, you know, a libertarian worldview is compatible with that. Now, I admit there are, you know, there are some libertarians that that want to let their libertine flag fly, and that's off-putting to, to folks of traditional values. But, but, you know, you don't get, you know, don't get distracted by that, right? What the underlying institutional framework is just as protective. In fact, in some respects, more protective of the person that wants a very closed, insular, 
uh, uh, contained traditional community than the person that wants some kind of rootless cosmopolitanism. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the thing that gets lost. I mean, I have a lot of disagreements with Patrick Deneen about his the story that he tells about the last 300 years and his hotshots at liberalism and whatnot. But there's a lot of really interesting stuff in the book, and he's a thoughtful guy. And one of the things I like about the book is just that he he doesn't end by saying, and therefore, let us, you know, uh, recreate, um, you know, the papal states in North America or anything like that. He says, uh, we're going to have to go through, not back, and create a system that encourages local communities that have a sense of solidarity social solidarity amongst themselves that have some autonomy and sovereignty. And I can get totally behind that. And I just, I don't know why his, that part of his argument doesn't rub off on the people who love the dunking on the founding and dunking on the, or maybe not the founding, dunking on the enlightenment and dunking on classical liberal theory and all that. Um, it's, it's a kind of a cherry picking. Well, it is, but you know, I think one thing is, is that, you know, there, you know, I said before that, that America the American project is is fundamentally a, a liberal project in the sense of a classic a classical liberalism, right? And but it's not just European classical liberalism on a different continent, right? There are things that are distinctly American about it. The way our federalism operates and it was conceived ended up being dis, distinct. The fact that we don't have a parliamentary system. I mean, there you know, so it's it's not. And I think that that one po- one possible connection to make is to say, look. Yes, conserving these American institutions is conserving liberal institutions, but it's not generic liberal right. institutions, right? And that that localized sovereign autonomous community that that that, that Patinin wants has a place in the American project in a way that it might not in a truly European liberal order. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and that has to do with all sorts of accidents of history, right? The, the, all the folks that came to the United States as religious dissenters, you know, Rhode Island become, you know, I mean, the, all of that history resulted in a set of institutions and, and, and understandings that are far more accepting of the local autonomous community that wants to go its own way than kind of a John Stuart Mill, you know, European liberalism. And, and, um, I think, I think therefore, you know, some of the, and some of the, the, and there, a lot of them are, are Catholic, Catholic intellectuals who are rebelling against liberalism as a threat to their, um, to integralism or to an understanding of, of, of a certain way of seeing the world, then make the mistake of, 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 of thinking that means they have to reject the American project too. And, and I, and I think, I think that step is, is, is the most problematic error that they're making. No, I agree with that entirely. Um, and look, I, I could go on for four hours and 20 minutes here. Uh, <laughs> but, um, I'm an academic, you put me in front of a microphone, I'll just go. Right. Yeah, I know. But I was also making a weed joke, but anyway, so, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, and I'd love to have you back. I have, two, I have two teenagers. I hear I hear 420 <laughs> jokes all the time. Out of the older one, I can roll my eyes. Out of the younger one, every now and then I have to pause and say, what do you know about 420? And yeah, I don't <laughs> want the answer. But, you know, it's, yeah. No, I know. It's like, I mean, daddy's working on a weed book. And uh, um, I remember when my daughter was really long, young, you know, just out of being a toddler, just a little girl. 
and my wife was taking her on errands and they were in the liquor store and um my daughter asked mommy where are we what is this place and my wife said um oh this is a booze store they sell booze and my daughter said booze my daddy loves booze <laughs> Which like everybody in the store looked, you know, and it's, was like, uh oh, it's it's true, right? I mean, you know, it's... Um, but thanks so much for coming on. Um, no, my pleasure. If, if I didn't have a hard out, I would keep you on for a while longer, and I'd love to have you back to talk about various and sundry other things because uh, you're um, you're fairly polymathic about a lot of things that I'm interested in. Comic books. Um, I'm I'm very interested in sort of the private conversation. Uh, conservationism stuff. Yeah. And, but, but I just had Ron Bailey on recently and I got to let some of that sluice off of me. <laughs> but Jonathan Adler, thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. All right. So Jonathan Adler has, has left the studio. I'm fine. I'm glad that we finally got to do that. Um, and I, you know, uh, I'm not kidding when I say he's crazy knowledgeable about a crazy number of things. Um, he's sort of a, offshoot of, you know, he's his generation's Ron Bailey in some ways. Um, and, uh, I hope to have him back on soon because there's a lot of comic book stuff that needs to be discussed. Uh, I do have to run though, but I did mention that I was going to read this quote from, uh, a man for all seasons. And, uh, this is a truncated version which I used in a column about federalism, uh, in December of 2016. And I was making this argument that rather than like dunk on liberals for suddenly rediscovering federalism only when a Republican is in office, which is a very old story. And I've written about plenty of times, you know, when conservatives talk about federalism under Democrats, um, all the chin strokers and liberal economists freak out about how they're, you know, conservatives are talking about sedition and don't they believe in the country? I thought they were patriots, yada, 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 or they want to bring back slavery. Ah! And then the second there's a Republican in office, the New York Times Magazine and all those other outlets, uh, sure, Shinola will come along and do these pieces about a strange new idea from the right is finding a new purchase on the left. And, you know, people start talking about, you know, the free republic of California and not just federalism, but secessionism. It happened under Bush. It happened under Reagan. And it certainly happened under Trump. And I want to make the argument in this L.A. Times column from 2016 that I will forego the joy of dunking on their hypocrisy if I could actually get some buy-in so that they remember this feeling the next time a Democrat's in power and um, they can understand where conservatives are coming from when they don't want to be ride, you know, to, to be run over roughshod by a government that they don't like or an administration that they don't like. And so anyway, there's this great line from um, A Man for All Seasons where um, Thomas More is debating William Roper. And Roper says, So, now you'd give the devil benefit of law. Yes, what would you do? Cut a great road through the law to get after the devil? Yes. I'd cut down every law in England to do that. Oh? And when the last law was down and the devil turned round on you, where would you hide, Roper, the laws all being flat? This country is planted thick with laws from coast to coast, man's laws, not God's. And if you cut them down and you're just the man to do it, do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? Yes, I'd give the devil benefit of law for my own safety's sake. All right. So that's it. I got to run. Um, 
It was uh, great to have John on, and thank you all for listening. Thank you all for watching Dispatch Live. It may not be that we have any more of those about the debates, because there may not be any debates. And maybe we can do a cleanup operation in the Friday solo remnant about these and various other things. Please subscribe to the Dispatch if you can. That would be wonderful, and I'd appreciate it. And regardless, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.